Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woohoo! Often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, um, apparently the, the Packies didn't want us there. And they hated the fact that Americans were in their country and they wanted to be able to solve the problem on their own. And so we started getting a lot of resistance from day one. I had a couple team guys uh, from the West Coast that would come out and help me out run these events. And then in Texas, I'd have active duty PJs that would come out. In Tucson, we had PJs, we had all kinds of former SEALs, whatever it would be. And, and it was primarily young stud active duty guys and retired guys that had phenomenal stories. We'd come out and, and mentor these guys for a seven to eight hour day. You know, people would, would say, hey, when, when you get a, a big mission, it's it's going to be when you least expect it. And whenever a mission would go down, you'd hear scramble, scramble, scramble on the walkie talkie. And you know, that's when your blood starts boiling and you sprint out to the flight line. You got the helos there. And um, so I'm like, dude, like this is, this is the real deal. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent six years on active duty from 08 to 2014 uh, with the Special Operations Unit known as the Pararescuemen or PJs with the U.S. Air Force. Coincidentally, uh, and very unique to any story I've ever heard, his dad and him served together as PJs, gone through courses together and, and were there at the same time, which is pretty awesome, which we'll get into uh, he received the Air Medal with V and a Combat Action Ribbon. He spent two years as a human performance researcher uh, at the Defense and Security Research Institute at the University of Arizona. He spent five years developing curriculum for human performance uh, in a similar fashion. And since 2017, so for the last almost six years now, he's been the CEO of a company called SOCOM Athlete, uh, which we will get into. Ladies and gentlemen, he may be sweet, but don't call him sugar. Welcome to the stage, Jason Sweet. <laughs> I promise not to be sour yeah. on the show today, Mike. Thanks hey. for having me out in the beautiful Dallas. Hey, Amen. Thanks for coming. Uh, well, welcome to uh, the devil's armpit. Because uh, <laughs> Jesus, it's hot here right now. But um, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to come. I know we're on a little bit of a limited time uh, schedule for your flight back, but I, I really appreciate you uh, coming coming out here. Um, what's the last full book that you've read? I don't have enough faith to be an atheist by Dr. Frank Turek. Is that right? Did you know I was going to ask that? Have you, have you done that much research? I might have done a little yeah. intel right. on you, Mike. All right. Uh, tell me about that book. So the book is all about evidence for um, God being the creator of the universe. So there seems to be um, this theory that uh, Christians 
uh, don't believe in science and, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. So Dr. Turek really diagnoses the evidence that we have that the universe was created, uh, that God created life individually and uniquely as, as well as uh, evidence through history, science, philosophy, and theology uh, of the resurrection of, of Jesus. So it's a, it's a great book and, and you know, the, the title says it all. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot of faith to believe that we're all just here by a, a mistake. Yeah. Did you, did you grow up uh, in, in a pretty faith-based home, or is it something that's been uh, uh, later on onset? No, I, I did, um, but as, as I'm sure we'll get into later in the show, my whole life fell apart when I was about 17, 18 years old, and uh, I fell away from the Lord for a time, and I had to find Him on my own yeah. to, to really develop that genuine personal relationship with Him. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into it. Uh, did anything from the book, uh, was it mostly confirming things that you thought, or what was kind of the biggest takeaway that, that either surprised you or that you learned from it? Biggest takeaway is, is that uh, one thing that atheists and, and Christians can both agree on is, is the Big Bang, is that the universe, space, time, material, all came into existence from a single point in the universe. And, and this can be confirmed through Einstein's theory of, of general relativity, um, through the second law of thermodynamics, um, law of entropy, the universe is constantly expanding. Um, objects are constantly decaying. And so it takes a lot much more faith, in, in my opinion, to believe that the Big Bang happened for absolutely no reason, and it came from nothing, versus the alternative that it was created by a spaceless and timeless being. Yeah. Some uh, some heavy stuff, no doubt. I've had a few guests on here that we've gone down uh, some rabbit holes of of universe theory and and uh, you know just uh, I would say kind of the like from a human history standpoint, whether it's faith based or or even from from an atheist standpoint, um, some some pretty heavy stuff. But I I guess the last question, so that we don't spend the entire time talking about space <laughs> and time, um, do you think that there was something prior to that? Uh, or, or what do you think was prior to the Big Bang? Uh, nothing. Okay. It was it was nothingness. Uh, in order for for time to to come into existence, there had to be nothing before that, and and that's where we hit our our mental capacity. There's just yeah. no way that that we can conceptualize there being yeah. no time. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's wild shit, no doubt about it. I mean, one of the things that I find the most fascinating, even though I said I'm not going to do this, I'm going to do it real quick. <laughs> the, the parallels in the universe um, from you know, as expansive as we can wrap our mind around all the way down to the cellular level is the, is the parallels in structure of, you know, veins and lightning bolts and, and things in your eyeballs and like circles. Yeah. I mean, just everything. I mean, like, uh, it's really, really fascinating. I mean, the way the, the neuron mapping in your brain, uh, you know, looks similar in structure to different galaxies and solar systems and shit. It's, it's just wild. But, um, Anyway, I'll, I'll uh, move on from that, again, just in the interest of not spending the whole time talking about space. But uh, <clears throat> what, uh, what's your favorite childhood memory? That's a tough one. Um, I got to go with high school football. And that may, senior year in particular of, of high school. And that may be not necessarily be a childhood, you know, as later teens. Uh, but they call it the, the glory days for a reason. 
And um, I wasn't always the, the most athletically gifted in, until I, I hit puberty and, t- you know, turned 13. I mean, I remember being so slow and, and unathletic when I was a kid. And then all of a sudden, like this, this magic thing happened to my body. And, yeah. and all of a sudden, instead of being like a defensive lineman, I was running the ball and returning punts and, and kicks. And uh, high school football was, was absolutely incredible memory yeah. of mine. And as far as childhood, man, just uh, being, being out on the boat with the family back when they were all together yeah. when I was a kid. You know, yeah. it's, it's almost hard to remember my parents. They, you know, we talked a little bit earlier. My, my parents uh, got divorced when I was uh, 18. And so having that, that memory of that togetherness when they were all together and we were just in our element out in the Gulf of Mexico in the boat, it's definitely a special memory to me. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. All right, hey guys, I want to take a, a second to talk about ads. Um, and this is not an ad. This is me talking about the ads. I know that um, you know sometimes we get comments of, of people bitching about the ads. There's too many ads or they're too long or what have you. And I, I want to clear two things up, which is number one is that my slash our team's ability to bring you guests and, and bring them in and, and the accommodations and, and the entire process that it takes to produce these shows to the level with which we do uh, requires funding, you know, and the, the sponsors give us an ability to bring these shows to you. So while I understand that everybody wants zero ads and, and everything bunched together and, and what have you, this is how we, we bring this show to you. Uh, you know, we're a very small team. We're very fortunate to, to be able to do it. Uh, but we do still have to uh, to pay bills and, and bring that to you. So keep that in mind. That's the first point. And the second point is that I can assure you with 100% accuracy is that there is not a sponsor or a product that I talk about on here that isn't something that I use, okay, that, that I either regularly use or always use or have used. And, and I refuse to budge on that, okay? So we, we get... Uh, offers for for sponsors regularly that, that get turned down because it's not stuff that I use or would use. So keep that in mind. Uh, have a little bit of flexibility in terms of our ads and, and realize that they're products that I believe in, that I stand behind, and they're what, what make this show possible. So if you support these advertisers, these sponsors, that is supporting the show. Thank you. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Do you have a uh, a specific morning routine that you subscribe to, say, for the first three hours of the day? Well, if, if there's surf in town, there is no routine. I'm, I'm going straight out to the yeah. water. I'm going to paddle out, and, and everything else can wait in life, right? But uh, if there's no surf or, or I'm not traveling, I got a 3.45 a.m. wake up. Uh, first thing I'm going to do is, is start off with a prayer. I uh, talk to the Lord about some of the things that, that maybe I'm struggling with or, or some of the needs that I have. Thank him for, for giving me another day on this earth. I love living life and I'm very grateful for, for my time here. Uh, then right after that, I, I get into um, knocking out the, the, the tasks that I have for the day that I least want to do. Yeah. And typically that's some type of project in the office. As you know, as a business owner, um, you're rarely out in the field having a good time. 
most of the the work gets done in the office and, and guys like you and I, it's, it's hard to sit down and stare at a screen and, and do meticulous attention to detail, typing, creating paperwork, responding to people, doing meetings. Uh, but that's what it takes. So I'll knock that out first and then I'll get some PT in. Uh, I love to run. Um, I love to run mostly because I hate running and it makes me feel <laughs> amazing and victorious after I, yeah. after I get done. That's why I slam my nuts in the car door every single morning. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Every single morning. I hate it, but I love it at the same time. Yeah, man. So, so that's the, uh, that's the run. And, and by that time, um, I've got a, a year and a half year old baby son, uh, wife's super pregnant, man. Like, uh, she's on like week 30, 34, 35. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to have a, so she's a, a real treasure to be around then. Oh, she's a treasure, dude. <laughs> yeah. So why do you think I came out here to yeah. Dallas, dude? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I gotta go. I'm just playing, babe. If you're listening, I love you. Uh, but but around when I, I finished that, uh, my son JJ is is an early riser. He wakes up at, at around six. So uh, about that time, I'll get him up. I'll change his diaper. I'll get him some milk, and then uh, my wife will will start making us breakfast. And and then the day goes on from there, my man. So from the time you wake up until the time you eat, it's usually several hours. Well, yeah, it's, it's it's several hours, yeah. you know, and that's when you can get stuff done without distractions while yeah. everyone else is sleeping. Yeah. Man, you're grinding. Yeah. Amen. That's good shit. Uh, so you're originally from Florida. Yeah, I was born in uh, Valparaiso, which is just outside of Eglin Air Force Base. For our listeners out there, Eglin Air Force Base uh, used to be home of the 1730th Pararescue Squadron. And this was an all PJ team back in the late 80s, early 90s. A lot of incredible PJs came in and out of that unit. But my dad was actually a, a PJ at the 1730th. And I was born in, in 1988 there in, in good old Valparaiso, Florida. So, I mean, obviously, if he was a PJ when you were born and, and then you ended up serving with him, that that was a, a consistent uh, aspect to your childhood. Was he gone a lot, I assume, uh, during those periods or, or in that, I guess, from 88 to, to 01, uh, was the op tempo not, not as treacherous? or? Well, dude, I don't even remember my dad being gone because that uh, that mission down in Panama that hit on Noriega, you know, SEAL team went down there. There was some Rangers, some PJs, combat controllers. They seized that airfield and, and rolled up Noriega down in Panama. Well, my dad's unit got selected for that mission. And so his enlistment was was coming up. And they're like, look, Maurice, man, uh, we, we got a little spin up for this. We're going to do some training, practice this mission, and um, we want you to be there. However, this mission will land right over your reenlistment. And so my dad's dad, my papa, rest in peace to him, uh, love him to death, but he was never around for my dad. You know, my dad was raised by a single mom and, and three big sisters. And so my papa just kind of came and went as he pleased. So my dad had this decision to make. Do I reenlist and get the mission of a lifetime or do I get out and, and be the dad that I wish I never had? because he was gone 250, 260 days a year, my mom said. So it was rough on him um, to have to, to choose not to reenlist, uh, but he did. And, and so I had the, um, the blessing of growing up with a, a loving dad. Oh, okay. So he, did he take a break in service then during that time? Or? 19 years, man. And, oh, and you know, I know we'll, we'll get into it later, but, uh, but he ended up reenlisting when he was 41. Wow. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, with me. So Man, that's good shit. Um, all right, so you 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 were born there. Did you grow up and spend all of your childhood in Florida, or, or I guess kind of synopsize your childhood with, you know, 
chronologically outlining what it was like, siblings, uh, sports, football, and, and, and otherwise that, uh, that took place. My little brother Nathan was born in 92, and we lived down there in, in Florida until I was 12 years old. So uh, I played baseball, played a little bit of football, did some martial arts, just kind of my parents exposed me to, to everything to kind of see what I was good at and, and where I fit in. Um, I started really taking on, on baseball as my primary. Um, and by the time I was 12 years old, I played on some traveling teams and, and was going to camps and, and getting coaching and, and was real competitive on it. Um, my mom also, she was an equestrian. So she had all these horses and she was having some health issues with the, with the climate down there in Florida. She was originally born in Albuquerque, New Mexico in dry climate, high desert. And so she was getting these allergy shots and apparently these allergy shots were, were giving her heart issues. And this is the only treatment she could get. So she, she pushed my dad to, uh, to check out out West. So we went to a, uh, a trip out West when I was like 10, 11 years old. And we checked out Arizona, um, Southern California, Utah, some of these Western States. And we ended up actually moving to a, a little country town called Payson, Arizona, which is about 65, 70 miles northeast of Phoenix. And, and for our listeners out there, most of Arizona, the whole northern half is big pine trees, gorgeous mountains. I mean, it's high elevation. It's beautiful country. You, you wouldn't even think it was Arizona. So we lived out there in the pines, population of about 15,000 in this little town of Payson, Arizona. And that, that was a big culture shock for me coming from, you know, kind of a, a beachy area in the deep South in between Pensacola and Destin, and then actually moving out there to the desert in, in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what was your dad doing for, uh, like once he decided not to reenlist and until he went back in, what was his career path at, at that time? Him and my mom started fixing up like little manufactured homes and, and smaller houses and then flipping them. Oh, okay. And so over time, he actually became a home builder and he started his own business called Sweet Home Builders. And the dude must have built 300 to 400 custom homes down there in the Destin, Florida area. He became the, the president of the Florida Home Builders Association. I mean, he was, he was a big dog in his, uh, in his field in construction. Um, so when we moved out to, to Arizona, um, he was commuting back to Florida to run the business. Okay. Wow. Fuck, that must have been a challenge, I assume. I mean, was he gone a lot at that point? He was gone yeah. qu qu quite a bit yeah. at that point. Okay. Um, so you guys moved there, bit of a culture shock. Did you jump right back into playing baseball or, or, uh, how, how did the, the culture shock and, and ultimately the, the shift into integrating into a smaller town desert environment affect you school and sports wise? It was such a small town that, that they didn't have a middle school baseball team. So my dad actually donated money to, to get a, a middle school baseball team started. Oh. And so uh, I, played on, I played on our little rim country middle school baseball team. Uh, but the good thing about Arizona is that even though it's hot, we can play baseball year round in the yeah. winter as well. So there's a lot of traveling ball. So I was able to get down there and, uh, and get the practice that I needed. Um, whenever I turned 16, um, Keep in mind, my mom had four or five horses. We, we lived out um, on some property close to the National Forest. Uh, she got an operation uh, called a hysterectomy. And for our listeners out there, uh, some of you have probably heard of a hysterectomy, but, um, but this operation has, has a pretty bad failure rate. And, and you get the uterus removed and, uh, and, and you don't have your, your menstrual cycle anymore. So 
Unfortunately, this operation really messed up my mom mentally and, and physically. She didn't recover well from it. And so she ended up becoming bipolar, anxious, depressed, having all of these, these health issues and these mental issues. And before this operation, my mom was the most gravitating, bubbly, sweet, just amazing, magnetated person that, that you would meet. But this operation, I mean, it just mentally crushed her. And so her health was, was so bad that my dad couldn't go back and, and run his business in Florida anymore. He had, he had to stay home and, and focus on us. I mean, he was like doing the cooking. He was doing the cleaning. I mean, he was taking us to, to places where we needed to be. Um, I had just got my license, but my little brother was four years younger, so he was only 12. So, so now dad's having to play mom and dad at the same time and figure out a way to, to run his business. And it, it didn't really work out too well. It's, it started tearing our, our family apart. And um, it was my junior year of, of high school where I got offered a, a full-ride baseball scholarship to Grand Canyon University, which is a, uh, an NCAA school down in, down in Phoenix. And uh, so I signed my junior year, and, uh, and I knew I, I had a, a future ready for, for me. Um, you, so f- you pitched, right? Yeah, I was, I was a pitcher and, and, and played some shortstop, and, uh, but I, I got recruited as, as a pitcher. Yeah. And uh, I loved high school football too. It was, it was a blast. I played running back, um, but I wasn't big enough, fast enough, strong enough. And we had this little podunk town. And, and so there were no recruiters that, that would come to our town, no scouts. Uh, so I didn't get offered any scholarships for uh, football, but I took that baseball scholarship and um, I graduated high school and moved on down to, uh, to Mesa, Arizona, which is one of the, uh, one of the suburbs of, of Phoenix. And I started serving tables down there at a Cracker Barrel restaurant. I had a roommate named Kevin and he was on our high school football team. He was a year ahead of me. So I moved on in with him and, and rented a room from him. And I was playing summer ball for GCU. And, um, my fastball was about 90, 91. I had a slider, um, a curveball, a changeup, had good command of the pitches, uh, and had a really good time that summer. Started moving my way up the ladder. Um, some of the coaches were, were starting about, um, or talking about making me a starter as a freshman. So I was pretty excited about that. Uh, but unfortunately, this thing at home was, was getting really bad w- with my mom and my dad. So even while you were away, it was, it was getting worse. Yeah, it, yeah, it was getting worse, man. And so what, what happened next was the, the, the season started. So this would be 2008. I graduated high school in, in 07. So the season starts and, and I'm playing ball and I actually am, am the number four starter in the pitching rotation. So for our listeners out there in baseball, you should play a four game series. So if we're playing against Hawaii, for example, they'll come into town and, and they'll play four or five games with us. Um, I would be the starter on day four. So you play two games in one day, typically a doubleheader, and then two games the next day. Uh, so it's a great position to be in. I was really excited. My whole life was in, invested in playing professional baseball. Like my, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of guys that that I work with, you know, they've they've known my my students. They've known that they want to be a seal or a PJ or a Green Beret for a long time. You know, it's it's out there. They've been influenced. But but for me, you know, the, the pararescue, um, the motive to do that, it didn't come till till later in life. Dad never really pushed me to to go that direction. And he didn't really talk about it a whole lot growing up. So yeah. I heard some fun stories in the <clears throat> pipeline, but he didn't really talk about it very much. So 
long story short, um, after my, my probably third game or, or fourth game, uh, my arm stopped working. So I went from having a, a 91 mile an hour fastball to throwing like 80 miles an hour. My, my gift was gone. And I'm not going down without a fight, man. So I tried everything. Like I tried different supplementation. I tried lowering my arm slot and, and maybe using some alternate muscles. Maybe that would give my rotator cuff a rest or something like that. Uh, I'm a worker. So perhaps all the drills I was doing was fatiguing my arm. So I, I cut back on the drills uh, and none of that worked. So do now you, I... Do you know what the, what the issue was? Was it a, a specific thing that you found out what, what the problem was? I, I couldn't figure out what it was. No doctors could? And so, uh, so I did physical therapy for a while and they're like, ah, you know, you have what's called dead arm and that's just where your, your arm's <laughs> fatigued and, yeah. and you know, you got to come back from it. Have so. you, have you seen uh, a million ways to die in the West? No. Oh, well, it wouldn't make sense, but that, that sounds like something from there. It's a uh, Seth MacFarlane, uh, made, made the movie from uh, family guy. He, yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a scene where, uh, it's doctors in the West and he's like, oh, you got toe foot and toe foot can lead to, to foot leg and leg, you know, leg leg hip and like it's just the, these stupid fucking terms i mean that, that's what it reminds me of fucking dead arm dead arm i, yeah. I mean it's, it's like a, as a pitcher you yeah. get like a god-given genetic throw count man there's only so many times where yeah. you can throw a baseball as hard as you possibly can before stuff stops working <laughs> before it stops well, working so i mean excuse my my ignorance baseball wise i mean i played growing up but never never at that level 10 miles an hour is is that a the difference between high school football and professional or football, uh, yeah. high school baseball. And like does, does 10 miles an hour in terms of trying to hit it a, a night and day difference. Yeah. I, I mean, if you throw, if, if you throw 90 plus miles an hour and, and you have command and you have some good pitches, you can almost guarantee you're going to play professionally. Yeah. You throw 80 miles an hour, you're probably not even going to get a, a college scholarship. Wow. So, so, so 10 miles an hour is a huge difference. So, so similarly, when you see, you know, the Nolan Ryans, et cetera, breaking a hundred, like from a batting standpoint, like trying to hit that 10 miles an hour is, is a night and day difference when you're facing a pitch. Oh, it, it's night and day. And, and it's not even about reaction time at that point. It's about anticipation. Yeah. It's about anticipating what pitch the pitcher's going to throw and where it's going to be yeah. because you just don't even have enough time to react. Wow. Fascinating shit, no doubt about it. Uh, all right, so you have dead arm. <laughs> got got the dead arm, man. It, it never came back. So, at that point, it was it was like time to to go to the contingency, and uh, so I tried acupuncture, I tried cortisone shot injections, and none of those worked either. You try any squirrely under the table shit? No, I, I didn't try any squirrely under the table stuff. You know, the, the internet wasn't really popping off back then as much as it was. So, I mean, I I wouldn't even have known what to what to try back then, but. Um, but nothing worked, man, you know? Yeah. So, um, so we're about halfway in, into the year and yeah, I'm spending four plus hours every day at practice, just kind of sitting around, not doing much. And, and then I get back to, to class and, and I've got, you know, hours of homework every day and, and mom and dad are, are having problems. So I start getting pretty depressed, man. Like this is, this is not good. You know, the, the, my whole life's falling apart at this point. So if that wasn't bad enough, um, my scholarship, I, I had this meal plan. So around 8 p.m. is when the, the dining facility would close. And, and then after that, like, you're, you're out of luck if, if you're hungry, man. You know, you got to leave campus and, and go to some fast food joint. And for our listeners, if any of you guys have been around Grand Canyon, I mean, it's in the hood. So um, 
not the best place to, to go and dine yeah. uh, off campus. So long story short, man, like I started getting hungry. You know, I was a college kid, so I'm staying up till like midnight, plus doing homework, hanging out, socializing. And I started getting hungry. And my parents don't have any money. And I don't have the ability to work. I already have four plus hours of baseball. I got the, the homework. I got, I'm in this situation that I am. I don't have the ability to work. So things started going downhill from there. And um, I figured out a way to, to feed myself. And, and, and again, this, this isn't right. Um, you know, I, I could have had the humility to ask for help. Um, but um, I decided that I was going to go to, to Walmart and, uh, and order chicken strips from the deli. Because I had done this before, of course, and paid for them. I noticed you order the, the chicken strips from the deli. And then you actually have to go and, and pay for those later up front. You don't, you don't pay for them there at the, at the deli and then they give you the chicken. So what I would do is um, I would order the chicken and then I would act like I was shopping around the store and I just eat the, the chicken strips as I was shopping. And at the time in 2008, I had a, a phone called a BlackBerry. I'm sure some of our listeners out there remember the BlackBerry. It was like the OG smartphone yeah. of its time. You know, you could actually browse the internet with yeah. it and, and stuff. Yeah. You know, it take you two hours to check your email. But yeah. um, so I, I'd put the BlackBerry up to my ear and act like I got a phone call, and and I I rush out of the the Walmart, and and then you know a day later or a couple of days later, I'd use a different Walmart in the Phoenix Valley area, then a different one, then a different one. Uh, it's completely broke. And, and stealing chicken. Um, so here's mom dying at home. Dad can't run his business and I can't throw a fastball anymore. My whole future, you know, I'm starting to realize that that may not work out the way I thought. And, and now I'm stealing chicken from, from Walmart. Um, so, so the freshman year was, was complete at that point. And um, I got sick of, of stealing chicken from Walmart. So uh, I found a way to to make money and uh, not proud of of that way to make money, but this started making my life even even worse. It led me on a on a downward spiral and um, I called my dad one day I hadn't talked to him in a while and I'm like, dad man um, I'm finishing up my freshman year here uh, I can't stay in the dorms during the summer I don't have any place to live uh, I don't really want to talk about what I'm into right now but but it's not safe for me to go up to Payson um, I pissed the wrong people off up there, dad. So, so what were you doing? I, I prefer not to discuss it on, on the podcast, but, uh, but for our listeners out there, I, I was making money, uh, in an unethical way. And, um, so I, I asked my dad, like, do you, do you have any, any place where I can stay? And he says, well, son, um, some investors and I built this house in Scottsdale and it never sold. The bank foreclosed on it. And I, I hit a key right outside of the house. And there's no food, no running water, no electricity, no furniture, no nothing, but there's a key and you can use it for some shelter. And so um, I was basically squatting it at this point, man, you know, like sleeping at a, a house with, with no furniture, no nothing, no electricity, it was dark in there. And uh, who, know, who knows when the, when the bank's going to come out and foreclose on it. So around this time, unfortunately, um, my, my family went bankrupt. And, and my dad, um, you know, for our listeners out there, the, uh, the Great Recession in 2008 just crushed pretty much everybody that was involved in real estate. 
home building, um, investment properties, what, whatever it may be, it, it crushed them. So because my dad wasn't able to, to fly back to Florida um, because he had to take care of my mom and he couldn't run the business, he wasn't able to, to survive the Great Recession. And so unfortunately he went bankrupted about this time. So, so now dad's really having a tough time. And uh, if my situation wasn't bad enough, uh, there was a senior at U of A that I knew pretty well, and, and he kind of looked like me. So he, uh, he gave me his ID, and, and now I had a fake ID. And I developed like this, this sickness from being broke and, and, and wanting more money um, that I ended up going to a, a casino and playing blackjack. And I read this book uh, called The Black Belt in Blackjack <laughs> and thought that, I, thought that I knew how to count cards or something from that, you know. <laughs> Fucking Rain Man. <laughs> rain Man, right? Well, one of the most important things to know about counting cards is that in order to, to know what your, your count is, what advantage or disadvantage you have over the house, you have to know how many decks are in the dealer's shoe so that you can do your math. And I'm over here trying to count cards at a casino that only uses auto shufflers at their blackjack table. So you have no idea what the deck is. You have no idea what your advantage or your disadvantage is. I just went there the first time and, and won a few hundred bucks and thought like, hey man, this is, this is how, it's, how it is. Like, all right, cool, I'm, I'm coming back here. And then after the third, fourth time, I got absolutely crushed. And now you're trying to catch up and, and you're dealing with this gambling problem at 19 years old. Um, it was pretty bad, Mike. So, were you still engaging in the uh, unethical way of making money at that point? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, guys. As you know, I'm into uh, health and fitness, uh, and specifically how nutrition relates to it. Um, coffee has has been a staple of mine, and, and I think most people's for a long time. Um, as you know, I'm a big uh, proponent of Mudwater, which is a sponsor of this show. They have been uh, for a while now, and and we have a great partnership. I love their product. Um, it's a phenomenal alternative to coffee. Um, for me, you know, coffee, there's jitters, there's mold in it. Uh, you know, a lot of times it tends to, to kind of upset my stomach. Uh, but Mudwater has adaptogenic uh, mushrooms. Um, there's a fraction of the caffeine that coffee has. There's a little bit, but it's very, very little. Um, and it, it really leans on, on mushrooms and the blend of matcha and chai for kind of that sustained energy that it continues to go and, and doesn't crash the way coffee does when uh, when it runs out. Uh, they use lion's mane for alertness, cordyceps to support physical performance, chaga and raishi to support the immune system, turmeric for soreness, and cinnamon for antioxidants. Um, I, I really enjoy that first cup of warm liquid in the morning by taking mud water instead of coffee, and I'll put uh, just a splash of, of heavy cream uh, or even some protein powder uh, some collagen powder, um, and I also throw uh, usually a couple drops of uh, stevia or uh, monk fruit vanilla to make it kind of a, a thick, normal morning coffee ritual type of uh, concoction. And uh, I got to tell you, it, it it does wonders for me, and and I'm really really glad that I switched. It's been you know better part of a year now, uh, you know that I've been taking that uh, and using that as part of my uh, daily morning routine. And it's fantastic. I love it. I, I can't re recommend it enough. Uh, it's hundred percent USDA, uh, organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Uh, and they also donate to the Berkeley center for science of psychedelics, which is, uh, you know, groundbreaking and leading research to help veterans with PTSD, uh, and other, uh, associated illnesses and, and, uh, syndrome. So, uh, great cause, great company, 
phenomenal product. If you go to Mudwater, that's M-U-D-W-T-R dot com forward slash Mike to su- support this show and the product uh, and use the code Mike Mud, M-I-K-E-M-U-D, all caps for 15% off. That's again, Mudwater, M-U-D-W-T-R dot com forward slash Mike. And the code is Mike Mud, M-I-K-E-M-U-D, all caps for 15% off. Go check them out. Hey guys, I wanted to uh, talk about something that I've incorporated into my daily routine, my morning routine that has had a remarkable impact on my life. Uh, It's called BioPro Plus. Uh, It's a non-synthetic HGH uh, treatment. And, uh, you know, every year after puberty, your HGH levels naturally drop uh, and exponentially sometimes uh, can even drop by, by 50% by the time you're 35 uh, I train jujitsu three or four times a week. I lift three or four times a week. And BioPro Plus, uh, without question, uh, enhances my ability to train more uh, days per week, harder, recover faster, uh, enhance performance. I cannot say enough good things about this product. I've been taking it for a few months. Uh, it's, it's remarkable, and I will continue to, to do so. Um, if you want to, uh, you know, perform better, look better, feel better. Uh, I, I can't stress it enough. I, I've tried BioPro Plus, uh, and I encourage you to go to bioproteintech.com. Uh, and if you want to get $30 off your first order, use the code MikeDrop, M-I-K-E-D-R-O-P. And again, that's bioproteintech.com. I cannot stress enough. This stuff has uh, been a game changer for me as I've gotten older. Yeah. Now, now, now my fucking hamster wheel is running. I'm trying to figure out what it is, but... Um, yeah, man. So, uh, all right. So you're going, you're playing blackjack, getting even more crushed. Your dad, uh, is filing for bankruptcy. Everything seems like it's kind of closing in around you a little bit. Yeah, man. Everything's closing in. Um, so this one night I, I go to the, the casino and I just got crushed, man. It must've been like 2 AM or something. I was trying to catch up and, and trying to get the money back that I had lost. And it, it just wasn't going to happen. I kept losing. And so I remember looking in my pocket and I got 80 bucks left. And, and you know, I, I'd keep all my money that I had in, in a big old, you know, stack of cash in my pocket, you know. And, uh, and I remember that, that whole stack was, was gone. And there's like four 20s left in there. And I'm just looking at those 20s and I'm like, dude, that's, that's all you have left to live. You need to get out of here. And so I left. And, and I remember as I was walking out, being so sick to my stomach, it felt like... Um, almost like a, a somebody you loved had, had just betrayed you or you had gotten kicked in the gut or, or robbed. I guess I really did get robbed from the casino, right? Uh, but it was just a terrible feeling. I, I could barely stand up straight is the best way I could describe it. And when I got out to, to my car uh, to drive home, um, I was in so much anguish that, that it, it, was, it was hard for me to even drive. And when I finally got back to the house over in Scottsdale, um, I got out of the car and, and, and I look up at the sky and as you know, Arizona, you can just see every star. It's, it's beautiful. You see the Milky way. And I didn't even know it was Orion's belt at the time, but I looked up at, at these three perfect stars that were just lined up together. And, and I started praying and I told the Lord, whatever you want me to do with my life, Lord, I know I haven't been talking to you. I know I haven't been around, but I'm here and whatever you want me to do with my life, I'll do it. I submit, will you please just tell me? And this voice in my head, all the hair on my back, I didn't even have hair on my back, but I get goosebumps on my back and goosebumps all over my body. It was an incredible feeling. And this voice in my head says, okay, 
how would you like for me to give you the message? And so I reply to the Lord. I say, have my dad call me when I wake up. The precise moment that I wake up, Lord, I need this to be real and reveal to me what you want me to do with my life through my dad. He's the only person I trust. So that night I, I curled up on the little, there, there actually was one piece of furniture in the house. It was a love seat, a little bit smaller than, than this, uh, this little couch we're sitting on right now. And, and it had one pillow, little guy. And I mean, we're just curling up on the, on the couch that night, just a defeated, broken person. And uh, I've never been suicidal before, Mike. I don't know what that's like. And I know a lot of our brothers struggle with that. Um, the best I can describe the, the way I felt was um, I felt like giving up. So I go to bed that night and um, I wake up the next morning. And I mean, dude, I went to bed. It got to be 3 a.m. or something like that, right? So I wake up the next morning and I just feel this sense of, of doom. Like I, I went back mentally to where I was the night before. And then all of a sudden I remember the prayer and, and I get this jolt of hope and I'm looking around for the Blackberry and I look down real quick on the floor and, and there's that pillow and, and I rip the pillow up and then there's the Blackberry. It had just gone from being lit up to dark as if I had just gotten a phone call or a text message. And with what I was doing for, for money, I was getting a lot of text messages. So I just remember thinking like, Lord, is, is, this, is this you? Is this really happening right now? So I pick up the phone and as God is my witness, miss call from dad, 11.31 a.m. I'll never forget the time. Yeah, that's wild. And so I call him back. Well, that's just one of the things I asked, right? I'm like, okay, man, he called me the precise moment I, w I woke up. It's been a few weeks since I've talked to him. Like that's a pretty awesome coincidence. But Let's see if he tells me what God wants me to do with my life, right? So I call him back and, and I don't know if you ever called somebody and, and like they picked up so fast that the phone didn't even ring. Well, that's what happened. He, he picked up so fast, I didn't hear a ring and I couldn't even get a word off. He goes, son, I have somebody who I want you to meet. I just talked to him. He's down in Tucson, Arizona and his name is Chief Master Sergeant James Sanchez and he is the PJ <laughs> oh, Chief of the 306 Rescue Squadron. And my brother, I went and, and became a PJ and, and turn, turned my life around, praise God. How, I mean, how, what was the, the turnaround time? Like from, from when he told you that, you went right, right straight down there and joined? Or? So the next day, he came down to, to Phoenix and we rode down together. And, and like, dude, I didn't even have like a, a suit or, or anything like presentable. I mean, I think I was wearing like Adidas sweats or something like that. And I go down and, and meet Super Sanch. And uh, the guy was just phenomenal. You know, he's, he's like a lot like you, Mike, you know, he's, he's humble. Um, you could tell he's all business, uh, but he's a mild mannered person. And he's just uh, somebody who I, I gravitate towards, you know, I always enjoy people like that. And I knew right then and there, like, I want to be like that guy. You were, you were a tier one PJ, you were attached to SEAL Team 6 for six years, you, were, you work with Delta, you work with the FBI, you lead this unit, you, know, you talk to me like I'm, I'm your own son. Dude, like I, I've heard enough, like this, this, is, this is what I'm doing, this is it. Yeah. And um, so I was already in, in division one shape, but you know, baseball's not exactly the most athletic sport, Mike. So yeah. I, and plus with all the swimming, you know, I had to pass a, a three or a, a one mile swim test, three mile run, push ups, pull ups, sit ups. And so I hadn't swam before much, much less doing underwater swims. Mm -hmm. 
So at that point, it, it was time to get down to business. Can we take one step back? Yeah. That day in between when you talked to your dad and when he came down, what was that day like? Where, where, where basically, you know, you, you got your message from God. What did you spend that day doing? I didn't do anything that day except for just train. Really? Like went right into... Just train. I went right into it, man. You know, um, I remember going to Verizon Wireless and changing my phone number that day as well. And that was a big step for me too, is, is just disappearing, removing myself from this distracting environment that I was in, from all the toxicity and just starting new. Yeah. And being able to go down to Tucson, um, it was it was different down there. Like I had never been down to Tucson before. It was a whole different world than anywhere else I had been in Arizona. And uh, Chief Sanchez hooked me up. There was uh, the commander at the time, uh, Colonel Bale. He had two daughters that were going to the U of A. One of them was disabled and the other one had a fiance. And they had like this little 950 foot square house just off campus. And I rented a room there for 300 bucks a month down there in Tucson. And this allowed me to start working with a recruiter. His name was Will Biddle. Shout out to you, Will, if you're listening. And, uh, and I worked out at LA Fitness two, three times a day. Uh, they didn't even have a deep end pool, man. So I had to get creative. You know, I'd work on that, uh, that 1500 meter swim. Uh, I'd work on doing underwater swim. So got to be able to knock out fifties. Um, and, uh, and I'd get creative, you know, I'd put like tops and bottoms on. So like a, a sweatsuit or something and, and have like a little under armor duffel bag and throw a bunch of little uh, weights in the pool and, and on a breath hold, swim to each weight, put it in, in one pocket on the bag, zip it up so I could get used to accomplishing skills under the water, under a timeline, under stress and, and start working dexterity and whatnot. Uh, I did lots of lunges, running in the foothills. Um, I hated running. So I had to find ways to, to get motivated. Uh, the U of A is like 70% women, Be- most beautiful women in the country. I, I think, th- I think um, they've been rated first or second you're going to have a whole shitload of people. <laughs> Multiple times, right? Trust me, I married a U of A girl. Now look out. So, uh, so what motivated me uh, was not looking soft in front of the chicks, right? So I'd be running on campus and there's all these women and it just it motivated me to, to run faster. You know, I'd go up in the foothills. It's uh, just God's country up there. Lots of beauty motivated me to run faster. Um, so the running was a big, a big piece. And, and once I started... Um, it took me about three months, but once I started really getting into the shape that I needed to be to, to pass the minimums and, and, and really be a solid candidate, uh, that's about when um, I had the opportunity to, to try out. So in pararescue, um, there's only about 500 PJs in the career field. And about half of the career field is guard and reserve teams. And you can be active duty at one of these guard or reserve teams. And the PJ pipeline is about the length of the SEAL pipeline. It's between two and two and a half years. So by the time you do a two and a half year pipeline, you do your mission qualifying training, a pre-deployment spin up, and then deploy to Afghanistan, you're looking at it four, four and a half years of, of doing active duty time. So I say that because at a reserve unit, uh, just like National Guard Special Forces, you have to try out for that unit first. And then they put you through the recruitment process. Then they ship you out to boot camp, and then you do selection, combat dive, airborne, halo, seer, all that good stuff, and, and then get your beret. So it's it's a process, right? And the uh, the three hundred six rescue squadron in Tucson, Arizona, they have an incredibly high success rate. And one of the reasons why they have that high success rate is because their tryout is no joke. Yeah. So it was a it was a three mile run in under twenty one minutes. It was a fifteen hundred uh, meter swim. 
in under 34 minutes, got to be able to knock out a 50 meter underwater. Uh, and then it was a three mile ruck march, uh, I believe, uh, had to be done in under 40 minutes uh, with 55 pounds. And so they put us through this, this whole training day and then they stick us in the, in the water and have us do this water confidence session. So we're like doing bobbing and drown proofing and swimming underwater and, and doing buddy breathing, passing the snorkel back and forth while instructor crushes us. And that was crazy, man. I mean, just doing like full on uh, water confidence, like for the first time in a military setting, that's usually what, what gets the guys to quit. So, uh, so that was a lot of fun. And, and then they put us in this mud pit and, and smoked us for about two hours. So, I mean, this was like a, a good eight, eight hour tryout or so. And, uh, I'll never forget, man, this, this tryout was on, uh, was on August 17th of 2009. And, um, I made it, I got accepted. And then, uh, I got a ship date right after that, man. So oh, they shipped me out October, October, uh, 18th of, of 2000, 2009, man. Wow. Yeah. Uh, in that, that process, you said once you moved, you changed your number, you moved down to Arizona or you moved down to Tucson, uh, renting a room for 300 bucks. Were, were you working at that time or how were you supporting yourself, uh, during that, that training process? Yeah. Great question, Mike. So, um, planning on being down there for, for three months. Right. And, and at $300 a month, that means that I need about a thousand dollars. So I actually reached out to my granddad. Uh, my granddad is a retired nuclear physicist, uh, on my mom's side. So he does pretty well. Um, I let him know what I was doing. I made a little proposal for him. I gave him the exact dollar amount and, um, he looked it over and, and he was glad to, to hook me up with a couple yeah, grand awesome, to, to help me out. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool as shit. Um, uh, this, this is the other grandfather, right? Not your, yeah, this yeah. is, this is mom's dad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, he was, what did he do for a living? He was a nuclear physicist, oh, shit. man. Yeah. Fucking Oppenheimer big dog. over here. Yeah. Yeah. Big dog. Yeah. Dude, that's wild, man. Um, all right. So, <clears throat> I mean, that's a hell of a, uh, a progression and, and it's neat to, to hear you explain and, and, uh, describe in detail that, that path. It's fascinating to hear. Um, when you first got in, um, and shipped out was the, the, the overall kind of experience of, you know, boot camp and, and the whole pipeline was, was it kind of what you expected? Were there any huge surprises? Were there any letdowns? Were there, were there things that, that I guess shocked you good or bad? The whole thing was a surprise, Mike. I mean, this is, this is 2009. So back then, you know, you couldn't get on YouTube or, or Google or, or do something like SOCOM athlete, like my company and, and get exposure to, to selection. There, there was just not a lot of Intel. Yeah. There, there was something called specialtactics.com, and they had a message board, like a discussion board where you could get in there and get some Intel. Uh, but really it was the SEAL teams that had uh, Intel out there on, on how to train. You had guys like Stu Smith yeah. and whatnot. They were, they were really crushing it back then. Still is shit. Oh, it's Stu's, yeah. Stu's a great guy. Had him on the podcast, love him to death. That's awesome. Um, but th there was there was really nothing. So the, the entire pipeline w was a surprise. You know, it'd yeah. be like going to a movie without seeing any type of trailer. Yeah. What, uh, to me, there, there's, a, there's a benefit in that, honestly. I mean, um, I, I think there's a happy medium of, of knowing too much. And I, I think, you know, in, in the last better part of a decade, there is a component of, of over-preparation that goes into, especially any of the soft programs that... Um, that exist out there that I, that I think some of it needs to be a surprise from both a selection standpoint and from a and kind of an internal or, or looking inward perspective of, of needing that 
almost unaware of, of what the fuck you're getting into for it to, to work the way that it's supposed to, you know, I mean, one of the neat things I think about, you know, like back when I went through, I mean, there were, there were videos. I mean, there was this guy, CJ Karachi that had the Stu Smith kind of, you know, seal prep videos or whatever. And it was these really old school calisthenic workouts. There were a few movies, there were a few Vietnam books, you know, there's Rogue Warrior, Dick Marcinko and, you know, so there was just just enough to kind of have an idea of what the fuck was going on, and 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 some of those books detailed some of the the components of of buds in detail, but there was still enough kind of stigma and aura that that when you showed up, there was still that almost pit in your stomach. Not almost, there was an absolute pit in your stomach where you're like, dude, I don't know what the fuck I'm getting myself into. That that I think is valuable. But um, one question I had. Um, during the, the train up while you were getting ready, uh, and also during that entire pipeline, did, did the dead arm affect you at all? Is it, is it still that way? Did it inhibit any of your training or any of your time the entire time you were in the military? No, that's a great question, Mike. It, it gave me absolutely no issues, really? no pain, no problems, no nothing. Just couldn't just, throw a, couldn't just, throw a baseball yeah. 90 miles. How about a fucking grenade? Can you throw a grenade better than most guys? I would hope I can throw a grenade, but, but I'm also <laughs> a, a PJ. So yeah. yeah. You know, you never know. You never know. know. I, I carried one frag when yeah. I was in Afghanistan, yeah. but you never used it. No, I never. Yeah. I never used the frag. Thank yeah. goodness. Dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I did read one uh, one clip on that. Uh, you know, SEAL versus PJ wanting to, you know, SEALs typically go in and take people's lives. You wanted to go in and, and help save or, or rescue that. Was that you know kind of an overarching theme throughout the entire? Uh, process and desire for you to want to want to do that is that something you thought about a lot to be upfront with you mike uh the seal mission statement was much much more resonating with with, with me yeah. i thought that being um an individual who would who would go and, and seek out targets and and take life was what i wanted but what i didn't realize is that what i really wanted was was respect and and i wanted an identity um, and for whatever reason, I, I felt like that would come with being feared. And so pararescue was one of the best things that ever happened to me, Mike, because everybody knows what a seal is. You guys have an absolutely phenomenal reputation in this country. You have status. It's, it's the, a lot of people view seals as, uh, the, the baddest dudes in the world, but there's like 9,000 books now, which is a big part of that. I think <laughs> you guys have great marketing. Yeah, pretty, pretty much everybody writes a book. Great, great marketing. Um, but when it comes to pararescue, you know, you go through this two and a half year pipeline where, where you're doing dive school and, and halo and, and, mountain warfare, mountaineering, medicine, you know, it's a phenomenal career field with, with incredible training. Um, but nobody really knows who you are. And then if you start trying to explain to somebody at, at a bar, for example, you know, let's say you got a chick that comes up to you at a bar and, and she asks you, you know, what you do and you tell her you're in the air force and, and this, you've already lost them once, once you say <laughs> air force, right? So here you are, this, you know, combat dive, halo, jump in mountain climbing, you know, rescue specialists with big guns, you, you know how to call in airstrikes, you know, you know how to do, do it all, but you don't get no cred. And, and I tell you, Mike, that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it taught me true humility and, and it taught me how to, how to have self-worth and not rely on an identity. And identity is, is what the world sees you as. You know, you show somebody your ID, they've got basic information on you, they, they know what you look like, but they don't know who you are inside, what your heart is. And, and Pararescue taught me how to, how to have a, a true identity uh, as a man of God. And as identity is, is me, 
not to be identified with my profession. That's such an amazing way to look at it. Uh, and and I, I really like and appreciate the way that, that you explain it. Um, from the, from the day that your dad called, um, did, did your relationship with God from that point stay upfront and relevant and, and in the forefront? It has to this day, Mike, he gave me a second chance. And, and I know that, that he expects something in return from that, you know, father son relationship. Uh, you want to, you want to add value to each other's lives. And, and I know that what God wants from me is to put him first in my life, evangelize, love him, love people. It's, yeah. it's pretty simple. Right. And that's why he gave me a, a second chance. So, but when you're going through a, a course like, like buds or, or PJ Indoc, you know, you've got a hundred guys that start the course and there's like three guys graduating or, you know, my dad's, they had like 110 guys and like eight of them graduated my course. We had a hundred guys start the course and, and six guys graduated the original. We picked up some setbacks from, from the class before, but when you're tying knots underwater and an instructor comes up and, and tries to choke you out and messes your knots up or, you know, you, you didn't get any sleep the night before and, and, you know, you're on a six, seven mile ruck march carrying heavy litters, or you've got an evaluation the next day and, and you got to do 13 perfect pull-ups or you're gone. doesn't matter how great you are at swimming, running, rucking, leadership. You got to hit those numbers on your evals. That's what PJN doc was like, our selection course. And there's just so many things that could get you. So I was in this position where, where I knew I had to be relying on God because I couldn't do this on my own, man. It was overwhelming. And I, I know that that sometimes is where people have to get in their life before they, they come in and meet Jesus per se is, is broken completely on their own where, where they need rescue and they need redemption. And so uh, there was only one option and, and that's victory or death for me. This is, this is my path. I've got the blessings from the Lord, but nothing is coming easy here. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, were there any parts of training that you failed or that, that you got uh, rolled back or anything like that? Yeah. So after, after the PJN doc course, so this is, this was a 10 and a half week course at the time. Um, you go straight to combat dive school and after combat dive school, you go to army airborne school. Um, Dude, I got, I got kicked out of Army Airborne School. Your so. hands were in your pockets, weren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> your hands out your pocket. <laughs> I did an improper facing movement. Um, so, so I got put in like Charlie Company first, right? And it's Memorial Day weekend. So we got a long weekend and it's like Sunday night and, and all there was to do. Did you go to Airborne School? Yeah, Fort Benning. Yep. Now yep. the SEALs have their own static yep. line jump school, so they don't have to deal with that. But, yeah, but I you was went old there. school, yep. <clears throat> I want to take a second to talk about something near and dear to my heart, and that is a staunch supporter of this podcast, which is Bub's Naturals. Uh, the hat sitting in front of me uh, here on our coffee table here in the studio belonged to Glenn Doherty. His nickname was Bub. Uh, I did two platoons with him, and his childhood best friend uh, and another colleague of theirs, uh, Sean is the best friend, TJ is their colleague, uh, started Bub's Naturals, which is a collagen and MCT oil company uh, in Bub's or Glenn's honor. And, um, you know, for me, it's, it's uh, an absolute honor to be sponsored by and working with a company that, um, you know, was started in the honor of one of my closest friends and, and a guy that I went to war with. And, uh, you know, the, the Bub's brand is not only super quality, um, you know, collagen, uh, collagen powder as well as MCT oil powder, um, you know, but they also give back to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. Uh, they donate proceeds from 
their product sales to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which, uh, you know, to me just furthers, uh, you know, the, the mission set on Veterans Day, they give 100% back. So uh, I do believe it's the best collagen on the planet. Uh, I like to mix it in with uh, morning coffee, the MCT oil powder, the same thing, uh, mixes in very easy, it tastes great. Uh, and it just kind of adds everything that you want to start your day off from a brain health standpoint from a joint support, gut support, um, you know, MCT oil and collagen are, are two components, especially as, as we age, uh, that are integral components to, uh, to health. And so, uh, to be able to work with Bubs Naturals and, uh, be able to, to work with them and, and sponsor a product that, uh, number one is a high quality product. And number two is, is so near and dear to, uh, you know, to my heart and to the mic drop podcast for, for who it, uh, was started for and what it stands for, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's an amazing, amazing place to be. So, um, it is whole 30 approved. Um, it's, uh, sport certified, so you're not uh, going to run into any problems with that. Um, and I will say that, um, you know, right now they're, they're offering, uh, 20%, <clears throat> 20% off if you go to bubsnaturals.com and, uh, use the mic drop code. So, uh, I really highly encourage you to, to try it out incorporated into your day day to day for joint health, for brain health, uh, for cognition, for gut health, and, uh, and to support an amazing organization that does a lot of things, uh, in Glenn Bubbs honor. So, uh, go to bubsnaturals.com. Mike drop is the code 20% off. Oh yeah. Yeah. Fort Benning, the whole, that that's where like we got in trouble is always get your hands out your pockets, Navy, <laughs> like all the time, you know, we're walking around with our hands in our pockets and they're, they're losing their fucking minds. But, uh, yeah, it was actually pretty neat because, our our my entire buds class went there together and it was right after like we didn't get you know leave or anything like that we went straight from graduating buds right to fort benning as a as a group oh you guys were just bad dudes yeah. salty you probably took the whole place over yeah i mean it, it was uh it was stupid honestly i mean because you're at that point like you just graduated you're in absurd fucking shape you know, and, and now you're PTing and working out with, with these army guys. And, and it's just, it's just a totally different animal, you know? And so, uh, most of our guys get in trouble there or got in trouble there. And, uh, but it was neat, you know, I, I will say from the big picture standpoint, it, it makes way more sense to have our own pipeline and it's largely modeled after your guys. I mean, you guys had that pipeline set up before we did and, efficacy and and you know from a training competency standpoint yes it makes more sense to do that however to me i'm really glad that i i got to go to to the army airborne school which i mean is drenched in history i mean there, there's so much history there and and so many you know going back to world war ii and even before like it, it's just a really fucking cool place to be and, and to have gone through training value is fa is fairly limited, but, um, but I'm glad I went, um, anyway, didn't mean to derail it. But. Well, it's a three week course that can yeah. be done in five days yeah. as, as the Navy has shown. But, but like you said, the tradition behind it is, it's pretty awesome. They've yeah. been training parachutists like this since world war two. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's pretty cool to, to go there and be a part of it. But, but as you said, the freedom of movement is very low. You don't have a lot of freedom there and yeah. the rules are really tight. Yeah. So the, the big rule that we had was don't go on the girl's floor, right? There's yeah. like a, there's, there was like three dorms or something. And one of the dorms had, uh, so the, what did you do? The second floor was like the, the girl's floor. Right. So, so it's the Memorial day weekend. We're at the one, one thing to do. 
uh, there at Benning near the airborne compound. And that's this little bowling alley. It was like a subway or something like that. You know, they get you like pitchers of beer and I'm not even old enough to drink yet. You know, I'm like, I just did like turn 20 years old, you know, so I'm hanging out like bowling and whatnot. And my buddy, he was a, a combat control student at the time. His name was Eli. And, and there was this girl who was just all over Eli. You know, she had a friend, not really my type, but I was chatting her up, kind of trying to let Eli do his thing. Classic wingman. Yeah, just yeah. Being, a, being a wingman, you know. N- no plans to jump on the grenade by any means, but I'll be your, I'll be your wingman. So we're hanging out, and, and it's 1 a.m., and the place closes, and, and we walk out. And there's a little group of us, and we've got the two girls with us, and um, – and, and Eli, we're walking the, the girls back to the, to the dorm. And so we get to the front of the dorm and um, they kiss and stuff. And, you know, I, I like do the appropriate side <laughs> hug with the chick that I'm like hanging out. Right. And uh, and everyone else like disperses. And uh, Eli's still there, like kissing this chick. Right. And she takes off, goes in the dorms and he looks at me. He's like, dude, I'm in. I'm going after her. <laughs> and so at that point, I should have been like, bro. No, we're, we're, we're going to stay here. Okay. But he goes and runs in there and uh, I'm kind of like thinking, I'm like, what should I do? I'm going after him, dude. I'm, I'm going to be a PJ one day. I'm going to go get my first rescue right here. <laughs> so like I go up there, man. And, and I, I go after him. I get up the stairs and there's, there's Eli. He's, he's making his way into the hallway. And this girl, this is a different girl. We, we didn't know who she was. She came out of her room randomly and saw both of us and was just like, you guys aren't supposed to be here. And I'm like, oh man, Eli, we got to go, you know? So, so he leaves with me and, and we get out of there. And next morning uh, we wake up and, and as we talked about earlier, you know, the, uh, the instructors at airborne school, they're pretty, they're pretty tight knit, man. You know, there's no BS there. They don't really get personal with you. It's not a gentleman's course. They've got their, their role cap on the whole time. Well, I thought this was kind of weird. One of the black hats, that's what we call the instructors for our listeners out there. One of the black hats walks in. He's like, hey, Jason. And he's like, call me by the first name. I'm like, oh, dude, I'm in trouble. I've been here before, man. Like, he goes, hey, Jason, uh, first sergeant needs to see you downstairs. And, you know, in the Air Force, a first sergeant is, is usually like somebody who uh, liaisons uh, for outside organizations for you or, or, you know, is there when you need help or advice. Well, in the Army, the first sergeant is a person you see when you're in trouble. <clears throat> these, these guys are no BS, right? Yeah. So I get down there. And there's the girl from last night that Eli was making out with, and she's bawling her eyes out. And there's her friend that looks like Beyonce with, you know, bald head, darn near. And then there's uh, Eli coming on down. And and we don't even know what's going on at this point. And so uh, we get called in the first shirt's office. Long story short, um, there was an individual that was at airborne school that was like in love with this chick. And he was kind of like stalking us that night, saw everything from a distance, reported us to, uh, what a uh, fucking narc. He, he he reported us and, um, to try to, to cover her own, butt. uh, the girl, uh, filed, um, sexual assault charges against Eli. And so the airborne's policy is anyone that was involved in any type of sexual assault allegations, you're out. So they kicked us out on the spot. Um, they obviously didn't find, you know, they, they dropped, you know, her report. They knew she was full of it. Um, but I called chief Sanchez, right. And I'm like, chief man, like this is what happened. He goes, looks like I'm going to have to get a chief chip for you, brother. (laughs) And so uh, he calls the first sergeant and uh, he was able to, to work his magic, uh, his super Sanch magic and, and got me back into to airborne. But unfortunately, 
they're going to roll me into the next class. So I had to be a student out of training for, for two weeks at Airborne, mopping floors and picking weeds with a bunch of dudes that quit RASP, or at the time it was called RIP, Ranger Indoctrination yeah. Program, you know, talking about how they got screwed over. Yeah, I'm it coming wasn't back. For them, or, you know, my girl's at home and yeah. I don't want to do this to her. Yeah. Come on, dude. Yeah. Every, every excuse in the book. So it, it's funny because I got recycled into, it's into the next class at Airborne. I freaking got my airborne wings and, and, and finished that up, man. And then um, after airborne school, I went to SEER, Survival Evasion Resistance Escape, for our listeners out there. And, and then after that, um, I went to Halo School. And uh, I got to go to uh, to Navy Halo School. Every once in a while, they'll send a, a couple PJ trainees out there. And, and we had an SQT class out there, man. And it, in, uh, in Arizona or in, it was, in it was San Diego? In Navy, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. out, out in uh, San Diego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Otay Lakes, yeah. TAC Air. Fucking hey, that's wild. Um, Probably one of the best times of my life, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. How many uh, SEAL students were there? There was about 100 in that oh, class, shit. man. It was huge. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's wild. Yeah, class leader. His name's Aaron. Uh, Aaron Aaron, and I are, are brothers to this day, man. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. One thing, uh, it just jogged my memory. I, I remember you talking about uh, at Fort Benning, one of the kind of hacks that we did is that you know, you're assigned a room, you know, at the barracks there. And most of us actually didn't stay there. I don't know if you guys did that same thing or not, or if, or if it was still a tradition or not. But so like we, you know, we get assigned the rooms and we're, and we're all together. So we, you know, made our bunks, everything's inspection ready because they're going to be digging in and out of your shit all the time. We ended up actually renting these little shithole apartments off, off right off base for the three weeks we were there and, and stayed there like total fucking rat's nests and left our rooms totally made up and, and didn't do shit in them so that we could just come and go and, and whatever and, and not get in trouble. But I, uh, I haven't thought about that since we, since we did it, but, uh, man, good, good memories. Um, all right. So, uh, you go through, um, halo school and then from there, uh, what, where did you go? From there, you have to go to a formal EMT basic course. And so this is a, a military contracted class. So you're doing it with all PJ students, um, but you're actually getting a nationally registered EMT basic certification. And then right after you finish that course, you roll into the EMT paramedic portion. Where is that at? That's all in Albuquerque, New Mexico okay. at an Air Force base called Kirtland Air Force yeah. Base. But um as of this year, the Air Force has actually moved that to San Antonio. So logistically, they can say uh, it's it's um, uh, Lackland Air Force Base. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. down the, the southwest side of uh, of San Antonio. It's one of those JBSA bases. Yeah. But that's uh, where the uh, dog school is at. Oh, yeah, it is yeah. over there, yeah. isn't it? Yep. And Air Force basic training is there as well. So yeah. in the Air Force's mind, instead of shipping guys all over the place, just kind of keep everything yeah. there. And how long are those San two Antonio? Schools? The MT basic course was about six weeks, but the, the paramedic course was about six months. Yeah. And on the civilian side, it'll take you about two years to get that done. So we're learning the same amount of information in 25% of the amount of time. And I wasn't the best student in high school, Mike. And, and in college, I, I did like the bare minimums to, to get by and, and uh, focus on baseball. So this was a, a this is a real challenge for me doing the EMT paramedic course. You know the the amount the volume of information that was coming at us and, and the amount of exams we had to take. I just didn't have any studying habits, and and I also didn't want to do that. You know, like yeah. I enjoy going and, and crushing myself physically, water confidence, rucking, running, whatever it may be. But 
when it comes to sitting in a classroom and, and reading a book and taking notes and then reiterating those notes in your head and practicing exam questions and having discussions with your with your teammates after class on your own time, I didn't have the, the discipline or the drive to do that. And I paid the man for it because the EMT paramedic national registry test, it's a very challenging test, but I failed it. And um, after you fail the exam, uh, they put you, they, they stick you out on what they call the island. And for three weeks straight, your job from, from eight to four is to, to study for, for this test. So for three weeks, I was studying for this test, man, just like really working on those study habits, learning how to be a, a decent student. And uh, I go and, and I take the test again and, and I, felt, I felt ready for it. But a lot of times I, I kind of second guess my first answer and, and I diagnosed the question a little further and I ended up changing my answer. And so I failed it the second time, man. So I got put back on the island, had to watch all my, my PJ teammates that, you know, my, my PJ training uh, classmates that I went through boot camp with and all that, like advance onto the pipeline without me. And that definitely hurt. Um, so I'm out on the island for another three weeks. And, and then I finally had the opportunity to take that test again and, and took care of business. Yeah, I'll pass it on the, on the third go around, third time's a charm. And then after passing that test, um, you go on out to... Um, the pararescue apprentice course. And this is a, a six month course where you're doing everything from uh, learning how to parachute into the water um, to uh, water operations. So static line, fast rope, uh, rope ladder, rappel uh, into the water, and then all your mountaineering. So lead climbing, um, all your mechanical advantage systems, which is something that makes a, a PJ unique, a, a unique capability we bring to the battlefield is, is our rope skills and mountaineering. Uh, and then you, you do your dirt medicine. So there's, there's a textbook way to do medicine that, you, that you're taught, but then there's a way that it's done on the battlefield. And so about, I would say three to four weeks of this course is, is designed to integrate you into, into battlefield medicine. We call it quote dirt medicine. Um, and then the course also has tactics, uh, close quarter battle, land navigation, um, all of that. It's about six and a half months. And, uh, so ended up, um, starting that course. And, uh, it was about that time I, I get a call from, from my dad. And, um, he, he had divorced my mom, unfortunately. Um, did that hit you hard at that point in your life or were you kind of, you know, past it being such a big deal? It hit me hard, man. Yeah. You know, um, from, from what I've heard, um, uh, divorce is, is it, it's painful no matter what for the kids. Um, but the later it happens, the more unnatural it is, you know, it happens when you're a child, you know, you grow up kind of getting used to, to this separation. Um, but for me, you know, I was 20 years old when they, when they, he left her, but when he left her, um, he reenlisted in the air force to, to be a PJ. So I didn't realize it, but the dude was getting back into to shape and, and he had gotten himself into to phenomenal shape. And it had been 19, 20 years since he had served. So the pipeline had changed up a little bit. Back in the day, their scope of medicine was significantly less than it was now. So his pipeline was he had to go back through, um, he had to go back through the pararescue apprentice course and he had to do EMT paramedics. So he had about a year of pipeline to, to get through. And um, I'll never forget, man, like, one day I'm, I'm at the schoolhouse and um, my roommate ended up graduating. So, so we get our own room and then we have a, a shared bathroom in the center. And then you got another guy on the other side in, the, in these dorms. And my roommate had graduated and got his beret, he's out. And um, my dad's like, hey man, I'm, I'm shipping out to, to Kirtland. And the dude ended up being my roommate. No way. 
So here I am sharing a bathroom with my dad. You know, he's 41. I just turned 21 at the time. And and dude, we're we're roommates in this this journey together. All right. So my first fucking question that immediately pops into my mind, did you ever take a shot at the title? Like, did you guys ever fucking go hands on? I mean, could you you take him at that time? Like, what do you think? I think I think I could definitely take my dad at, at that time. At that time. At, at that yeah. time, yeah. But now, now even more so. I mean, man, he's getting a little older now. Yeah. So so he kn- what, he knows I could take him now. Yeah. He's in his early fifties. He's in mid fifties yeah. now. Yeah. But yeah. um. But no, man. You know, I have too much love and, and respect for my dad to, to start throwing uh, hands on. Well, him, but yeah. I mean, to me, like if, if I'm if, if I had a son and and I was in that position, like the second I walk in that room, I'm grabbing a hold of him. No, no fucking two ways about it. Like we're I don't know, that, you know, but that's awesome, man. So was it was it weird? I mean, like it was super weird, man. You know, because there was damage done to our relationship as a yeah. father and a son because of the divorce and just the, the craziness that that life had had brought us. But at the same time, we had that glue holding us together that that was pararescue. Did you talk to him about about the divorce in that capacity as a roommate? Like, or was it? Almost the elephant in the room that you guys avoided. It was the elephant in the room, man. And we probably should have talked about it. And for our listeners out there, uh, it, it doesn't do any good to bury something and, and try to avoid uh, bringing it up uh, to a person whenever you have conflict. You bury it. Uh, you think that time is going to fix it. It's not. It'll it just lead to resentment. It'll lead to resentment and a big explosion. So be willing to, to go through that, that kind of discomfort um, to address something to someone when you love them and you care about. It. Do it right now. You don't want that explosion to, to happen later. So um, it was definitely the elephant in the room, and, and we, we didn't really talk about it very much. You know, we focused on pararescue at that point. Was he? Did he ever do like a like a pull rank on your cleaning the shitter today or, or any of that kind of stuff? Like, did he mess with you at least? No, man, no, nah, he, he didn't do that. But but yeah, he they, they put him in as an E five. So he, oh, sure. yeah yeah. So he was wow. a staff sergeant when he got back in. Wow. Yeah. And you, and what were you, were you an E four? I, I was an E three. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's still still. Um, I guess what you know from a a duties and responsibilities standpoint was was that had to have been a little weird. Like who, who's in charge of what or who's responsible for what? Like was, was there any any weirdness there or gray area? Not really, Mike. Because yeah. you know we just shared that that bathroom and we spent such little time at the dorms. You know, they, yeah. it it didn't really matter. Yeah. You know, we kept it clean, had good aim, life yeah. is good. It's <laughs> awesome. Was uh, the the rest of the guys there? I mean, I'm assuming they all knew that that he was your dad, right? Yeah. D- did that cause any problems, or was was the were there any things out of the ordinary because of that situation that you guys got either not ostracized for, but like any exceptions made or any ex- extra pain in the ass or anything like that? No, we actually got a lot of support from our, our teammates, you know, our yeah. classmates, guys for classes behind us, guys in classes in front of us, the instructors. Um, they thought it was a, a very special thing. And, yeah. and so a lot of guys would, you know, they'd ask my dad how I was when they saw him or ask me how he was whenever they saw me. Um, they loved seeing us together. You know, how are the sweets doing today? Yeah. You know, it was, it was pretty awesome, man. That's wild. Yeah. Uh, so how long were you in that capacity for? That was six months. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where did you go after that? I got stationed in Tucson, Arizona over at the, uh, at the 306. And, yeah. and at that point it was, um, it was all about getting spun up for Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, that's what all of us joined to do. Did your dad go there also? So unfortunately the air force had to rewrite a bunch of AFIs because. Which is what AFI? Um, so, so in the air force, like you, you have these, these rules, these regulations. And, um, because brothers had served together before, 
Um, there was there's an AFI, there's an Air Force regulation that stated that the brothers can't fly in military aircraft yeah. together. Uh, brothers can't deploy together, etc. Et yeah. It's like the Saving Private Ryan thing, which actually stems from uh, the five Sullivan brothers, which are from my hometown in Waterloo, Iowa. There were five brothers that all died on the same battleship in World War II. And uh, the convention center in my hometown is named after them. But yeah, ever since then, they started uh, yeah. that type of thing. Can you imagine? No, I couldn't imagine yeah. be, being a, a parent. Five brothers all, all in the same boat. Yeah. Uh, anyway, didn't mean to interrupt, just wanted to throw that in there. but. <clears throat> Uh, so he didn't go there. So you're in, in 306 in, in uh, Tucson. How long were you there before you ended up deploying? It was uh, about six months, seven months spin up. And um, my dad and I got to do some training together. And Chief Sanchez found a way to, to kind of work the system a little bit. And uh, one of those ways was uh, Eloy, Arizona, home of Skydive Arizona. It's one of the biggest skydive operations in the world. Uh, they have a bunch of, of civilian aircraft there, you know, twin otters um, that take you up to altitude. And, and we had kind of a, a little contract with them where we could send PJs up there to, to rack up their jumps and, and get some hop and pops or, or whatever it may be, get some canopy time. And uh, so Chief Sanchez actually got my dad and I like four lift tickets. And um, he goes up to us one day and, and Chief's like, hey, guys, um, I'm retiring. This is uh, going to be my last jump and, and I want to do it with, with you two. And so, um, just chief, my dad and I went down to, uh, to Eloy, Arizona, down to skydive, Arizona, and, and got to do the, the yeah. last jump for chief Sanchez all together. It, yeah, was, that's awesome. it was pretty awesome. Man. That's really cool. Can yeah. you, can you outshoot or out jump your dad? Both. Yeah. No shit. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I got a little video. I got a little video of us doing a dueling tree with the pistol. I got him every time. And I got him every time with the jumping too. All, all respect to you, dad. I, yeah. I love you, but yeah. I got you. Yeah. I mean, if, again, if I was in that shoes, I'd, I'd rather my, uh, my son be able to outshoot me, but, um, man, that's cool as hell. So you're there for seven months. You get that last jump in with, uh, with a guy who, you know, was instrumental in, in, uh, your career that your dad knew. Um, and then you deployed after that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we got a tasking to Helmand province, Afghanistan, uh, flying out of uh, bastion airfield. So this is like the, the apex deployment that you could ask for is a PJ running missions in and out of the Helmand river Valley and the Nadi Ali river area. You know, you've got, I've heard up to 80% of the world's opium supply all coming out of that Helmand river Valley. And so, you know, there's going to be some gunfights there, you know, it's going to be kinetic. So many guys on our team wanted this deployment that we decided to split the deployment in half. And you could have some guys that would do front half, second half, or guys that would do the full thing. Um, but my dad wasn't, wasn't able to, to deploy. Um, I took the deployment, you know, he blessed that he under, he understood that. And, uh, and I got to go to, uh, to Afghanistan while he stayed home. Yeah. So what, uh, what was it like for you when you first got there and like, you know, from, from the call that your dad made and turn your life around all the way up to, you know, a couple of years of, of training, a few setbacks and, uh, and just grinding through it and, and making it to the pinnacle of, of why you joined first time your boots are on the ground, uh, in Afghanistan, what's going through your mind? It was interesting, Mike, because when we got out of this C-17, we, we went into this little holding area and this was like an in-processing tent. And while we were in there, I'd say we were in there for, for maybe two minutes and these Afghan commandos walk in. And I, I didn't know they were Afghan commandos at the time, but these guys walk in and, and they are just sweaty and bruised and dirty. 
and they've just got this ragtag uh, uniform, you know, all unconventional. One guy's got this camo pattern. Another guy's got a different pattern. One guy's got an AK-74. Another's got a modified AK-47 uh, with a, a stock that I've never seen before. Uh, you got one guy, I think he maybe RPK, you know, uh, belt fed weapon. I mean, these dudes are, are just coming in here loaded and you could just tell that they had war in their eyes and that they had seen some stuff. And I'd never seen that in, in a man before. And, um, I, I was almost a, a little fearful, you know, are these guys just going to start shooting at me or, or what's the deal? You know, I mean, here's these guys with, with AKs just sitting across from me. And I just remember thinking, dude, like, welcome to Afghanistan. Like, yeah. you, like you're in the show now. Yeah. So, so that was the, the first thing that, that happened with me, man, wow. is, is, is sitting there across from the yeah. Afghan commandos. Dude, that's powerful, man. Um, how long were you there before you ended up getting out and, and starting doing it like what, what was the time time frame buffer wise i mean it was almost right away i, I think we spent between uh, five to seven days um, getting familiarized with the area getting in processed seeing how they do things and whatnot and then kind of getting worked into our to our shift and, and we had two taskings over there tasking one uh, is what's called casualty evacuation. So not to be confused with medevac, uh, casualty evacuation means you're flying into the point of injury, whether there's gunfire or no gunfire, and you're going to extract that individual or individuals from the battlefield, uh, no matter what the risk is. So that's casualty evacuation. And, and our primary air platform for that is HH-60 Pavehawk. And one good thing about the Pavehawk is you have aerial refueling capability, kind of like the 160th. So you have a, a large span uh, radius wise on, on where you can operate on. Uh, and then the other tasking we had was called the guardian angel tactical response team. And this is like a quick reaction rescue force for a lack of better words. Um, and the, the goal of this team uh, is to go to point of injury uh, for more technical type of rescues. So, uh, we actually had some PJs in Afghanistan get a combat dive mission, man. There was a MRAP that got blown into a river canal and we had to, recover some bodies and some sensitive information uh, from that MRAP and ended up doing a, an open circuit dive and taking fire and getting into a gunfight uh, while they're doing diving. So we had dive gear out there. We had all kinds of technical rescue gear. So this would be like extrication gear. Uh, so like jaws, uh, saws, hooli tools, you know, you get somebody who's trapped in, in some type of wreckage, whether that be air wreckage or, or something like an MRAP or you got to be able to, to get them out. And, and there's a lot of training and, and expertise and skills that uh, extrication requires. So we had that. And then we had all of our, our ropes and even Arctic rescue if we had to do anything up in the Hindu Kush and in northeastern Afghanistan. So the Guardian Angel Tactical Response Team was more for the, the personnel recovery mission. And, and that's the bread and butter of, of a PJ is what's called PR, personnel recovery. So my first tasking uh, was with Gator. And uh, it, it was a little slow, man. You know, we didn't really get any missions. We're like sleeping on the flight line. And here's our guys that are on Kazavak getting in gun battles and doing real deal rescue missions, stuff that you'd read in the movies or, or read in a book or see in the movies. And I was really hungry to get over there to, to the Kazavak side. Um, but it was weird. We, uh, we got launched on a mission to, to Pakistan. And this mission, apparently, um, we, we got told that it was an avalanche and we had to recover a bunch of, of bodies from, from PAC, PAC military. And so um, we got limited information, limited intel. And uh, we got told um, that we needed to, to be on a C-17 within 24 hours and, and to get ready, have the whole mission planned out, have all your logistics, have your team picked and, and get ready to go. 
So they sent 12 of us over there. For our listeners out there, we usually operate in 12-man teams, whether that be ODA or, or PJ team or, or whatever it may be. So there was 12, 12 of you PJs? Yeah, we had 12 yeah. PJs. Wow. Yeah, yeah. so 12 PJs to, to launch on this mission. And so we brought so much gear, Mike. It was just insane how much equipment that we brought out there because we had limited intel on, on what this rescue would require. Um, so it was pretty interesting, man. Like we, we got a, uh, an escort by uh, some fighter jets as we were crossing the border. That was super exciting. I, I knew things were getting real at that point. And, and from what our team leader was telling us, like there's just not a lot of guys that go to Pakistan. They don't yeah. like us. They don't like American presence. So it was very special um, that we got to go there. And so immediately when we get to Pakistan, um, we link up. I think it's GRS. I don't know exactly who these guys were, uh, but they were a paramilitary organization. Um, and they were primarily responsible for, for transporting us to the embassy, kind of liaisoning um, between us and, and other organizations or other entities to make sure we have what we needed. And uh, these guys picked us up. They're civilian clothes. They're bearded out. What year is this? Very professional. 2012. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they pick us up at the Islamabad airport and they're like, hey, hey, dudes, you, you, you can't bring your rifles. And we were like, what? They're like, yeah, you guys got to leave, leave your rifles on the plane. And so our team leaders, you know, trying to, to parlay with him a little bit is like, nah, man, like this is not negotiable. Um, you can bring your pistols, though. And we got like these M9 Beretta <laughs> crap Air Force pistols, you know, like oh, double action. Like, yeah. what, what are these going to do? Right. But but so we got to bring our pistols and. And then the uh, GRS guys like, yeah, by the way, uh, they need to be locked in cases, unloaded. And we're just like, all right, man. So, so now they, they take away our, our weaponry and we're kind of defenseless. And, and what, so, what long guns did you have? I had an M4A1 okay. with a 203 on it. Yeah. So pretty standard stuff. Yeah. Right? Okay. yeah. We carried a Mark 48 as well, but we didn't yeah. bring a, a yeah. Mark 48 on, on that, uh, on that mission. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, we, we got picked up by these guys and, and this was bizarre, man. Cause in Afghanistan, you know, I'm at this, this big base and then we do these quick missions in and out, in and out, spend minimal time on the ground. So it's a very Westernized, um, base that I'm on in Afghanistan. So when I got to Pakistan, man, and we're on the road, like I really got to see that middle Eastern culture. I mean, there were camels hanging out on the side of the road. There were these big jingle buses as they call them all decorated in different colors with jingle bells and, you know, a family of 20 all riding around in this bus. Us. There were stretch motorcycles with like eight people all on the same motorcycle, <laughs> um, you know, trash everywhere on, on the street, you know, little mud huts and then some huge, you know, beautiful Western looking building right next to it. Just very, very interesting. And, and um, I, I tap on the glass and, and I noticed that we're in up armored vehicles and, and that the windows are tinted. So when people drive by us, they, they look at us funny, but they, they can't see in, in the vehicles. So what, what were the vehicles? Suburbans, okay. black Suburbans. Yeah. And so we, we got taken to the uh, embassy row, as they call it. There was a German embassy there, uh, I believe a French embassy as well. And there was a British embassy and then ours. And so we get to the, the U.S. embassy. And, and I thought it was interesting because there, there were no Americans guarding the embassy. It was all Paki military. So guys, you know, with beards and AK-47s that, that guard the entire embassy. So they check our IDs, you know, we get in there and uh, we immediately start briefing. And apparently this mission is a big deal. And we're supposed to have a, a brief with Hillary Clinton the next day. And um, so I'm like, dude, like this is, this is the real deal. Well, um, apparently the, the Packies didn't want us there. 
And they hated the fact that Americans were in their country and they wanted to be able to solve the problem on their own. They didn't want to bring our help. They didn't want to owe us any favors or anything like that. And so we started getting a lot of resistance from day one. First thing that happened is we noticed that when we got back to our rooms, whoever our, our quote maids were, uh, they had looked through our stuff. So, so we were instructed to intricately lay out our, our equipment and, and, and our gear and our personal items to where if somebody had, had touched it when we were gone, we would know if there were people monitoring us, surveying us, whatever it may be. And sure enough, the, the packies were, were monitoring us pretty closely and uh, they thought we were spies. So long story short, man, um, we got taken out that night by whatever this organization was, whether it was CIA or, or GRS or whatever it was. They, they took us out to dinner that night to this Indian food restaurant. And I thought it was kind of odd that, you know, government organization will, will go out in a, a public restaurant with, you know, a bunch of 12 man PJ team and, and just kind of parade about, you know, hey, we're here. Just let everyone know. Right. So I, I thought that was a little odd that we weren't being a little bit more low key and, and clandestine with our presence. Uh, but we went to this this big Indian food restaurant and I ate curry for the first time. And, um, and then these guys brought us to their their headquarters and, and it looked like this big mansion. <clears throat> It was gorgeous, man. They had this electronic gate and it opened up for them and you drive in the back and there's beautiful trees everywhere. And this is at night, you know, after dinner. And, you know, here these these agency guys are, are taking us into the house and, you know, didn't really think anything of it. We're in the top floor and they're like, hey, come down here. So we walk down this, this staircase, man, and here's this huge command post. And they've got, you know, live drone feeds everywhere and all kinds of different computer screens. And it was just phenomenal. You could tell that, like, these guys were the real deal, whoever, whoever was, was driving us around and, and transporting us. So Dude, That's fucking wild. Got to spend a little time at, at a safe house. And then um, they gave us a ride back to the embassy, man. And at that point, we're just on standby. And so the next morning we wake up and the whole team's got food poisoning. We're talking like mission ineffective food poisoning. Uh, that night, you know, I kid you not, sorry for too much information to our listeners out there, but uh, I had to, had to use the restroom, relieve my bowels 13 times uh, in one night. My roommate was even worse. I mean, he, he could barely even walk to the bathroom. So uh, whether we had gotten food poisoned uh, purposely or inadvertently, I don't know. Uh, to this day, I think it was purposely uh, to keep us off the mission. Uh, and at that point, it was all about um, getting some type of antibiotic, uh, getting plugged up. So we got like a modium. Uh, we got Diamox as well because the elevation that this mission is supposed to be at is like, you know, 10, 11,000 feet. And so we didn't want to get AMS, acute mountain sickness. And so we had to take this Diamox, which increases your your respiratory weight. So we're all just feeling like crap, man. And And even though we felt this bad. We ended up going to a party that night at the, at the British embassy, man, and, you know, exchanging our U S dollars for rupees and then exchanging the rupees for British pounds. And it was a good time, man. Uh, it was a costume party. We obviously didn't show up in, in costumes. <laughs> dude, how fucking random is this? Like, dude, it's so it's random. It's like a movie. And, uh, the British girls, uh, they, they, they loved the, uh, the PJs, man. And then we, yeah. we went over to the German embassy and I had some fun there. And, and apparently one of the, the German chicks like fell in love with my teammate, Mark. And she's all calling the U.S. Embassy the next day asking for Mark. And, and <laughs> you know, the agency guys are like, what did you guys do, man? You got yeah. people calling the embassy for you. And I'll, I'll wrap this mission up. Um, 
Packies didn't want us to go out and, and survey the site. What, what ended up being is a huge landslide that just wiped out a couple hundred of their military personnel. And they brought in just as a big F you to us. They brought in all kinds of Western consultants and advisors like Sweden, Norway, Germany, all kinds of rescue teams and let them go out and, and, and get it on. And um, the only thing they let us do is send our team leader uh, on a quick fly around on the site sent him back, uh, packed us up and, and shipped, shipped us back to Afghanistan. And I tell you what, Mike, I've never been, never thought I'd be excited to go back to Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, as I was after spending 12 days at the U S embassy in, yeah. in freaking Pakistan. Wow, you were there dude. that long. Yeah. There were 12 days wow. waiting for the big mish. How, how long did, uh, did the sickness plague you guys for? The entire time. It really? wasn't, it wasn't until probably two, two or three days back to Afghanistan that, that our bowels started returning wow. to normal, man. Dude. It was brutal. Yeah. That's gnarly. Um, you mentioned doing, doing some missions, uh, that, that were quick. Did you do stuff before you went to Pakistan or was that the first kind of thing that you did? Nothing. That, yeah. that was my first mission. You know, yeah. I, I hadn't been in combat. I hadn't been outside of the wire. Yeah. I hadn't, you know, been anywhere except yeah. for, except for there. Okay. So uh, that, um, that was early on. That was early on. Yeah. yeah. And how, how long were you on that deployment for? That was a uh, six month deployment okay. that we split in half. So okay. my group was there for about three and a half months. Okay. And, um, you know, the PJs are flying sometimes two and three, two or three missions a day yeah. in a 24 hour period, which can be pretty exhausting. Sure. So I, I think it was good, um, for the morale of our team as well to split that up. And, and, you know, you had some of the, the young single guys, uh, that did the full six, you yeah. know, it was, yeah. it was good for them, but. Yeah. All right. So what, what was the rest of that deployment like? After getting back from Pakistan, I finally had the opportunity to be on the casualty evacuation platform. And um, that was the, the high ops tempo. And, um, you know, you, you look at these these missions and you could get everything from like a FOB transport, as we called it, which is you're just leaving leaving the wire, flying in to ship, going to some FOB somewhere, picking up a dude who's got a, a medical condition that cannot be addressed by the medical personnel there on base. And we're giving them a ride back to, to Bastion Airfield. We have uh, what's called a roll one trauma center there. That means that we can handle any type, any level of, of trauma. Um and then we'd have missions where you fly into a, a poppy field and there is an active tick for our listeners out there. That's troops in contact. So you got a gunfight going on and you've got to rescue your guy or multiple patients off the battlefield, uh, figure out how to get them back to the bird and get them back to the hospital. Um, as a PJ, your, your primary role is, is to postpone death and, and extract someone from the battlefield, rescue them, right? And then you got to keep them alive until you, you can get them to a dock. Uh, so that would be our, our big bread and butter is, is fighting our way into somebody that's, that's in an austere environment or, or is in a, a challenging situation that nobody else can, can get to them in and, uh, and getting them out, um, our air platforms, these HH-60s, um, in the beginning of the war, we would use mini guns, 308 caliber, uh, but we went through a lot of ammunition with that. And um, what we found out was that the 50 caliber was a lot more effective on these missions. Uh, it was more intimidating to the enemy. We could carry more rounds. And then we had what's called party pack on there. So we'd have a, a splash round, a tracer round, and then an armor piercing round um, on these HH-60s. And then if there was enemy in the area, so we'd get like a nine line if we launched on a mission, right? <clears throat> and uh, if there was enemy in the area, then we get an escort. And typically that'd be an AH-1 Cobra or an AH-64 Apache. 
So when we went on one of these casualty evacuation missions, if there was enemy in the area, we were bringing a ton of firepower, whether it be from our personal small arms or the 50 cals on two, uh, two HH-60s, uh, as well as the AH-1 or the AH-64. Um, so it was almost like a quick reaction force where, where we're also going to rescue you at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's badass. How many, uh, like, legit of those types of missions did you go on with that deployment? 62. No shit. What, uh, there's got to be a few that stand out as being uh, remarkable. Yeah, um, Mission 427 Alpha. Uh, <laughs> Is that, that what it was? Yeah, yeah, Mission 0427 Alpha. Um, so that mission in particular, this is my first time being in combat. And this was my fourth mission on the casualty evacuation uh, platform. So like the first three missions I had, these were in the middle of the night on NVGs, uh, just quick transports. We didn't really get to spend much time on the ground doing anything. What were the the nature of the, the those rescues? Were they uh, gunshot wound type like uh, combat injuries or were they a, a mixed bag of all kinds of different shit? Gunshot wounds and, and blasts. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, sorry. And so the, the fourth mission, 0427 Alpha, um, I was sitting there watching Batman on, on my laptop and you know, people would, would say, Hey, when, when you get a, a big mission, it's, it's going to be when you least expect it. Sure enough, man. I, I mean, I, we had our, our walkie talkie next to us and, and whenever a mission would go down, you'd hear scramble, scramble, scramble on the walkie talkie. And you know, that's when your blood starts boiling and you sprint out to the flight line. You got the helos there, your armor, your weapon, everything, your rucksack, everything's in the helo already. Cause you staged it when you first came on shift. Intel runs out of the Intel department, gives you a nine line Rotors are spinning up. You got limited uh, information on what you're flying into. And then boom, it's, it's go time. AH-1 swoops in in front of him, does another gun run. We're just hitting these guys heavy. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.